Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Jonas Dodu, the head and founder of Speedworks Training. In this episode, Jonas in great detail will be breaking down how he guides the return to running process from a coaching and sprint perspective. In this conversation, Jonas explains the physical qualities he develops as early as possible with athletes following an injury and what he looks for with regards to technical movement competencies and capacity. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, get ready to take notes for this one because there's a lot to unpack. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Informed Performance is a proud partner of HUMAC Norm by CSMI. By using the HUMAC Norm isokinetic system, you can see what you are treating. An isokinetic test measures maximum muscle capacity through range of motion. So when you're comparing an athlete's involved sides results to their uninvolved, this system makes it easy but objective to see where strength deficits exist to help you design a very efficient path to function. Then follow-up testing on the machine will confirm if your athlete or athletes are on the right path or if changes still need to be made. To learn more about the new HUMAC Norm and their refurbished machines, visit humacnorm.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's conversation with Jonas Dodu. Jonas, it's uh, it's great to have you on, mate. How are you? Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very good, thank you. So we, we had your good friend and uh, member of a bromance, Ben Rosenblatt, on the show very recently. Um, yeah. And he referred to you. So um, yeah, it's good timing to get you on the show as well, by the sounds of it. Awesome. Awesome. I, I hope he said only good things. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, I've heard you speak on other people's podcasts uh, many times talking about all things kind of speed and sprints. Um, and I think probably S&C and sprint coaches will prick up about these topics. But what I'd like to do is hit a slightly different narrative with you while we've got you on the show and talk about maybe return to run and maybe the rehab end of things a bit more. So we'll take a slightly different narrative with this one. Before we get into the sort of nuts and bolts of this episode, could you give us your background just in case someone hasn't come across you yet? Okay. A whistle-stop tour of me. I'm a coach. I started as a rugby player, got injured a lot, learned a lot from physios and osteos and chiros, spent a lot of time under Dan Path, did my master's thesis study in Dan Path and um, he's a super coach based in the States but was based over here and they built up to the Olympics in 2012. Um, I learned that training is testing and testing is training, um, that a good coaching eye, good understanding of biomechanics, uh, functional biology and, and, and um, uh, clinical reasoning and, and just I guess uh, principles of training gives you an ability uh, and motor learning so let me say that again a good awareness of biomechanics and movement principles motor learning and how to coach and how to design an environment to elicit a movement pattern and just training um training theory principles of training if you have those three b 
big rocks and understand them, then you can design any program for anyone in any scenario, be it rehab, be it return to play, be it trying to peak an Olympic athlete, be it trying to get a, a 12 year old to run better or, to, or rehab to, to run more efficiently. Um, and that everything else is, should fit into those boxes and those boxes should am- uh, amalgamate to make, um, to create a philosophy that allows you to, to just be appropriate in your environment. Um, and that was highly influenced by Dan, highly influenced by Ed Mias over in, over in Ireland at the moment, a physio that worked with me a lot, highly influenced by, um, by yeah, a range of coaches and therapists that have really supported me over my journey the past 15 to 20 years coaching. And what does coaching look like in this current day for you? What's the sort of current setup and activity? Wow. Wow. It's an appropriate time. Uh, Three years ago was COVID. So I was doing some team sport consultancy, but mainly working with a track and field group. And I I had some really, really good sprinters world level. Um, I I found a group, um, I guess, in 2012 and and coached most of those kids for eight years. And they went to Olympics, blah, blah, blah. Uh, COVID hit. I focused my work in football, in, in football, soccer, and in rugby more than I had done prior. No track and field. But as of two weeks ago, I have a track and field athlete that's come back to me in the build-up to the Olympics, um, wants to make an Olympic final in 100 metres, is really skilled and, and um, is probably a lot about him as an epitome of me. He, he, we, we've coached him for more than 10 years. Um, he couldn't really compete for three of those 10 years. He would run once or twice, run really fast and break down. Um, had a massive scoliosis, massive leg length discrepancy. And over time, some of that scoliosis became a bit more shallow. Um, the leg length discrepancy, because a lot of it is functional, became, made some changes. And he, his, uh, our, our understanding of what it took to make him fast to what it took for him to have the physical underpinnings to sprint and run sub 10, not just once, but consistently across the season. That that process evolved because we kept on breaking him in the first couple of years and we, we didn't treat him as an individual. We tried to create a running style based on the average elite athlete as opposed to N equals one. Um, so now he's back and now I have a fun project where um, the learnings I've gone through the past couple of years are now being applied to him again. And so coaching at the moment, I probably spend um, uh, a day a week in total in the office, but mostly that is every day in the morning, early mornings. Um, uh, Four or five days in a month, I'll spend with a football team normally. um, And a few mornings uh, or one morning a week, I spend with a rugby team, Leicester Tigers, that are local to me. Um, And then the rest of the week, I'm, I'm on the grass, I'm in the track, I'm in the gym. I'm coaching my coaches. I'm coaching our clients, or I'm or I'm coaching um, now. Reese Prescott. Cool. It's a good mix. Um, let's let's dive in, mate. When let, let's say that an athlete has a lower limb injury, just because it's probably the most topical, and they're walking around, they're weight bearing okay. How early do you sort of begin your running related or sprint related activity with them? Because I'm thinking, like, just as, in terms of a narrative today, that's probably the best place for us to start. Um, yeah, yeah, one. for sure. I, I'm, I'm hoping to be doing something as soon as they are pain free in standing. If I, even if it just means that in a standing posture, we can, we can weight bear and we can remind their pelvis 
what it feels like. Because as soon as we have an injury or we have an, uh, a pain or we have something we want to compensate away from, what's really clear is that people don't want to stack their pelvis anymore. They, they, a natural instinct to reduce pretension, to reduce shock in that in the early part of ground contact is to go a bit more um, lordotic, a bit more, um, I want to say, soft in the hips, and the foot ends up just falling on the floor in front. So even if we can't attack the ground yet, I want to remind them what it feels like to to have a trunk with the obliques engaged, glutes and obliques talking with each other, having a nice corset, a stable trunk, a stance leg that allows for force to be shared up through the through the leg, through the trunk, and the free hip to be happy to be suspended by the obliques and the stance hip. So really strong, stable stance hip that allows this free hip to um, to, to do what it should do, which is just be getting the knee through ready to attack the ground. Now, what the opposite is, is often that um, in stance, either because prior to stance, or let's just say I'm just standing, um, I would rather have a bit more uh, lumbar lordosis. I'd rather have my pelvis falling forwards. Um, I always say it's like my, like my grandma, right? Walking around like my grandma. You'd rather be in that position. I'd rather be a bit more quad dominant. Um, and when I look at the free hip, it, let's say you're just standing with one knee up, just start, start. So You're not jogging, you're not doing switches, you're not doing isos, you just got one knee up. The function of getting that knee up from the ground is just a lifting function, just hip flexion. And that's not what it should be. What should really happen is the stance leg should initiate to push the free hip up. And the hip flexion is a almost a result of the free hip rising. It happens as a result. And of course, the hip is flexion. Of course, the thigh is moving. But it's happening with... Um, with the propulsion of the stance leg, if we're looking, um, we're looking front on. We're, we're thinking about what is the free hip doing during hip flexion? Is it staying level and the and the the knee is just rising by itself, or is the free pelvis rising and the knee is rising and it's suspended because the stance leg is pushing through the ground to be stable? Like that's a a very important KPI for me. Um, when we figure those KPIs out. In standing, in in skipping, um, in drilling, in running, in in side skipping, and crossover steps across the board, that is a common denominator for what is efficient movement that we push to punch. And so, if we're going back to a rehab scenario and you can't do much, if anything at all, I'm already doing I'm already doing walking drills and reminding people that as they roll from heel to toe, that there should be a bit of pronation into supination, and that should be the trigger for the free hip to rise. Um, we're doing walking lunges. If we can't have impact, but we can have a bit, if we can't have really good ballistic impact, but they can still do a walking, a general locomotion movement, like a walk or a walking lunge or walking high knee. There's a timing to the movement of the pelvis. There's a timing to loading the foot, pushing back through the system and having the pelvis rise. And there's a, there's a coordination that should be happening in the obliques that allows for that to happen really well. Um, and so regardless of the stage of rehab, regardless of what the advice is around um, uh, how much load the player can take, there is always an opportunity to work the spectrum of movements from walking to skipping to 
to low level to high level plyos to dribbles and scissor bleeds and and, and resisted runs. This it's all a spectrum, and no matter what, you can always regress down to okay. Let's do some walking drills. How do you feel? Great. No pain, no sensation. Awesome. Let's move on to some low-level skips or some low-level jogging, some dribbles. Can can we make contact? Okay, maybe there's a bit of pain there. Before I stop, I would ask them to dorsiflex, be prepared for the floor. I'd ask them to make sure they're engaging through their trunks so that their so that their hips can stack and they can hit the ground under the um, under their body and make sure that they are pushing to punch. Like that that is a common theme across the board. 70% of the time actually the pain that they're feeling is no longer there. Then I can push on a bit more. So I'm always guided by pain. I'm always but guided by a, a compensation to avoid a certain strategy. Of course, I'm guided by the fact that if it's muscular, if it's tendon, if it's ligament, bone, there's going to be different just expected timelines for healing and expected timelines for for um, extreme loads. But in many scenarios, three to four days after an injury, we can get them on their feet. They can be walking. They can be drilling. They can be isoing. They can be doing something to keep the movement pattern alive and keep the, the efficiency across the system alive. And when they keep that alive, they always rehab a lot quicker. They always come back, not just fast in terms of timeline, but they come back moving well. They come back running fast. So um, long-winded answer, but hopefully that addresses your point. No, perfectly. Um, does it does it change in any way if you're working with, say, a field sport running-based athlete as opposed to a track star? Um, uh, what specifically? How quickly we return to running? Yeah, or maybe what you'd obviously like when, when somebody's in a team, like a football team, rugby team, they've got physios and S&C coaches from the clubs inputting into what's happening. But for what you do with maybe an injured running-based athlete in a team, does it change? Okay. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, it really does change. And sometimes it's to do with the team, sometimes it's to do with the level of client and what they want from me. So in a track and field scenario, most times I'm taking all elements of the rehab. Whereas in a team sport environment, that there are several stakeholders, there are pr- processes and procedures, and some teams will involve me really early in the process, and some will wait until it's mid to late stage, and and they would w- almost want to do their own due diligence. He's here; he can go to his maximal um, strength in in an ISO and can be nearly close to what he would make within a certain uh, time frame. Like I asked Alex Natero your question, he's like, okay. Well, I want to make sure I have max, if it's a tendon injury specifically, I want to make sure that the max forces are back, but the time to get to max force may not be back yet. Like your, your KPI for, um, for high performance might be a, a certain force metric at 100 milliseconds, and that might not be back yet. Co-contractions and muscle synergies and motor unit recruitment, all that stuff might still be the issue, but the tension and the ability to take slack out of the system is sorted because they can at least create force. So he's got some key benchmarks like that. I asked um, Ed Mias at Irish Rugby the same kind of question. And he gave me, okay, fine, you would look at some muscle dynamometry in, in, in the clinic and do some clinical tests. But he's, he's very much from a track and field world. Can they dribble? Can they do uh, any hard contacts on the spot? Can they do it on a mat? Can they do it barefoot? Can they do it in trainers? Um, he, he's going to have more functional tests. So there's such a variation, especially in, in performance sport, football, rugby. 
there's some such a variation of the things that people choose to do to to give them confidence that the athlete is ready to move on and in my world I have to go with what gives that club confidence and in some scenarios there are lots of boxes to tick and I think that actually some of the movement proficiency stuff should have happened way earlier and in some scenarios actually as just like I would do as soon as the person is pain free and walking we're doing walking drills we're visualizing reminding the body of what it can do okay now they can move on they can move on so we have on, I guess on a daily basis or every other day, we're, we're doing what they know, what we know they can do, and what's the next drill, the next exercise that we know will induce a next level of stress, and we're stress testing that in a low in a low volume, low density perspective, and using that as our barometer for for progression. So I, I think both of those methods work. Real hard numbers that help dictate stages, or competence-based progression and I think the best systems are a combination of the two where you use the hard numbers at very specific points turning points in the program especially the bigger long-term tendon related injuries you know there's so many things around ligaments and joint stuff that you strap you can protect right and there's so many things around soft tissue that um Actually, if as long as you get some load into it, you can slowly progress really easily. It's the tendon ones where we have some very specific timelines that that makes sense to me, but still combining a competence-based progression. Like I have a few rugby players, one in particular actually, who never rehabs in the timeline he's been given. Always a third faster. And not to come back and there's an issue or, or some kind of knock-on issue, it's just the way his body heals. Every scan always looks like he's got some B and C involvement, some tendon involvement. He's always got deep bleeds. He's very unique. And I think the animals we end up working with are very unique. So when we have these these criteria based on certain strength me- measures, force plate dynamometry, based on very specific timelines, those criteria are rarely being, they haven't been created from the most unique data set of, of athletes. They're an average across groups. So some people are slower, some people are faster. What helps us with that? Well, the competency. Well, as soon as they start moving better, as soon as they're able to do certain things, that that's our trigger to move on. Um, not just the data, not just the numbers. It's interesting hearing you say that because I think, um, I mean, I'll, admittedly, I was going to ask you in a nice clickbait question, um, you know, how strong is strong enough? But I think you probably answered it better at, you know, evolving that to movement proficiency and just raw outputs and capacity for force. Um, do, do you, you, you know, you've touched upon quite a few of the movement proficiencies that you're looking for very early on, sort of through the rehab process for a running based athlete. Do you kind of, if you're guiding the entire process, is there sort of minimal standards, I guess, that you want from a force output perspective in certain joints, ankle, knee, hip? Is there, is there minimums you want ignoring the yeah. average? I I think that it's, it, it's if you've got a some kind of movement signature, some kind of profile for your player prior to injury, then you've already you already know what they were doing prior, and so I think it's a return to norm plus. That's what I was was what I'm thinking. A return to norm plus, and that's where I want to be by the end of rehab. But do I expect them to be there early stages? No, um, and. In most scenarios, if I'm leading the whole thing, I'm going to be taking benchmark figures, but I'm always going to be movement competency based. Yeah. 
I think like one of the things I always experience as a coach and physio is um, there is just an inherent force gap between what you can subject an athlete to in the weights room uh, and what you can actually get them to achieve when they're running um, mm. for, for many reasons, obviously. Um, and I think obviously plyos and drills probably bridge that gap best. Um, we had a conversation about a week ago and you, you sort of touched upon in that short chat, the importance of somebody having a good exercise library, which I'm guessing includes a lot of drills. Can you, mm. can you maybe expand on that and talk about what you mean by the importance of that library and, and maybe in this context, what that library really needs? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. If I start from a perspective of um, systems-based thinking and analysis, and if we are trying to create an exercise library for acceleration, max velocity, braking, change of direction, I, I want to first understand what are the common commonalities between those areas. And often we're coming down to me from a local from a biomechanical perspective saying well what are the objectives in all of those areas we want to project ourselves we want to create forces and push our center of mass forwards sideways up or backwards right but we're always trying to project or or um, prevent projection in deceleration but it's very much thigh based bum based the ability to co-contract and triple joint extend and flex with good timing um, and can be limited or enhanced based on how we control our trunk, based on how we control our center of mass. If we can have discipline and disassociation in our ability to use our pelvis, um, if we can create big ranges between our thighs and close those ranges quickly, switching. Um, and if we can use our ankle um, and, and calf complex to create force, but probably more importantly to um, to transduce force, to, to deliver all of the force that's coming from our thighs and from our body mass and gravity into the ground and get energy back out versus just leave it in the ground and send shock waves and energy leaks in different directions. So if we can understand projection, switching reactivity, the underpinning physical qualities that support that and recognize that there are slow SSC and fast SSC actions, actions that are more deep knee bands, more contractile in nature, really require time on the ground and range being expressed in flexion, then extension on the ground to really accelerate the pelvis and accelerate our bodies in the direction versus actions that have a deep knee, uh, have a shallow knee bend are far more about system stiffness and don't give us so much time to create the forces, but potentially allow us to, to, to recycle forces far better, allow us to use our elastic system, our tendons far better, and are maybe dictated more by actions happening in the air as opposed to actions happening on the ground. So that's the, the lens I look through. Before I even talk about exercise menu, I'm looking through a lens of understanding that I can break down any um, intense action or game action, yeah, running fast, stopping, cutting, use a language of PSR, projection switching reactivity, understand how the, what the nuances of good and bad performances in each of those 
areas and recognize how that influences PSR. And then recognize that actually I can either do those tasks more ground-based and contractile, slow SSC, or more air-based and more elastic, fast SSC. Okay. So by understanding these things, then when I come to my training menu, everything else is easy. Because in my across my training, let's, let's just talk about a simple drill a way of organizing drills. You're going to have a fast SSC in your session. Great. You're going to have a fast SSC like a double leg pogo. Maybe it moves to a single leg pogo. It makes sense for me to then choose a slow SSC movement that incorporates the fast SSC. So I could just say go and do a standing long jump or broad jump. That's definitely slow SSC. I'd rather do a skip for height or speed bound because all I'm doing there is demanding fast, stiff contacts, but also demanding big projections. That's what fast running is. If we just move to a broad jump or two broad jumps, yes, it potentiates power. Yes, it means you're better off in your first two steps, but it doesn't have as much transfer to the rest of the run. doesn't have as much transfer to other activities. So I go double leg pogo. I go skips for height. I've addressed and I've coached and cued those key movements. What else would I do? I'll do some kind of boom boom, some kind of high knee or dribble. Why? So I can practice the switching element. Um, I'll do some kind of scissor and bleed out of it. So turn it into a run, turn it into something else. Those are my basic training menu exercises. We have tons of exercises in the gym. We have tons of other exercises that still fit into those categories. But essentially, I need to make sure that I can be reactive, that I can combine that reactivity. So that might just be vertically, that I can orientate that reactivity forwards with a bit more projection. So I use a skipping action that I can do that same activity, maybe with more limb exchange, faster limb exchange. So I'm now bringing in my boom booms and my high knees and my scissors and that I can, um, I can ramp up the intensity of those movements by doing a bleed, by doing my scissor or my high knee and turn it into a run and demanding the same kind of movement patterns. Because if I do that for max velocity, I can do the same kind of thing, but maybe make it more lateral for change of direction. I can do the same kind of thing. Um, and, and of course, the exercises might not be exactly the same, but my mindset's exactly the same, that I want to make sure the base of support is solid. I want to make sure they can project and create forces using the ground fast. So not just push, but can they push fast? And that I want to make sure that they can exchange their limbs rapidly so that once they finish that, those initial couple pushes they can keep turning that into velocity that's the philosophy i've described it for upright running i will take that same um, list of basic drills and exchange them for ones that are more lateral ones that are more about breaking and ones that maybe are more orientated in, into acceleration versus upright running but the but the system and my my thought process remains the same it was interesting you saying that, you know, if you if basically if you understand what's going on and, and I'm sort of hashing your words badly, but the menu kind of is easy to figure out. I mean, in a in a parallel, I used to spend a lot of time with Gordon Bosworth, who I'm sure you um, know in the physio space. There's a lot of track stuff. And I remember him when I was a young physio saying, if you understand the problem, the treatment's really easy. Like the treatments make themselves very apparent if you can understand and recognize what the system needs. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, Ben Ben Rosenblatt's with us this Saturday for for the workshop, and if no one can make it, we're going to make it available online. And that's why we clicked so many years ago when he was in hockey is because he's so systematic in how he makes decisions. The exercises are almost um, uh, not the important part. It's understanding the what and the why, and then then once you understand the what and the why. As a practitioner, you can be in an environment with no equipment, do certain exercises. You can be in another environment with lots of ex- equipment or expectation that you use certain equipment. You, you could have athletes and, and players that come to you with an emotional connection to a certain way of training that might look very different to what you do. None of it matters to me because as long as I manipulate that exercise, I can get it to be stiffer, to have more projection, for them to have more pretension, to have more trunk discipline. These, these principles apply everywhere and, and they align directly with efficient and, and effective biomechanical movement patterns and, and ways of organizing your joints to create outcomes. Um, the, the exercise is something that we poo-poo. I can walk into, because I go into different clubs all the time and they're like, yeah, this is what we do. And I'm like, great. I'm, I'm not saying you must take my training menu. In some scenarios they do. But in many scenarios, I'm like, right, okay, you do that. So why do you do that? Well, we do that because of this. Well, I'm like, okay, if that's your rationale and if that's when it's happening in the week, then I think you do the same exercise, but you, you need to do it a bit differently. You got them to be a bit more shallow or drop them off of a box when they're doing it or put a band here. And and the why is always going to come back to, well, what was the objective? What's the main reason for doing it? The frequency, the intensity you want from it? And how does it align with, again, those basic tenets that we've talked about so far? Kind of like a, a complex, uh, complex understanding, simple intervention, isn't it? If you if you really know what's going on, you can throw throw less darts at the board. Um, I think as well, you can you can give the athlete the the exercise, the the prep, the rehab, whatever it is. I think you can give them sometimes the stuff they really probably don't want to do uh, because you're not giving them lots of options. You're just giving them the one thing they need to do, but you can communicate to them you need to do this because, and you can hit them hit home with the exact reasoning that they, they probably need to hear to get the buy-in as well versus less understanding kind of just clustering everything at them because you, you know, you're throwing stuff at the wall. Yeah. I definitely think that um, as coaches and therapists, we think we have to entertain the athlete and sometimes entertain ourselves because it can be boring. If you're taking someone for a nine month rehab, like you want variation. Sometimes if they're not hurt, you've got coaches that are like, they want it, they're, they're bored of seeing certain things and they put pressure. But um, you can never make a, a, a skill, a habit, unless you've repeated it and it's getting close to being monotonous. And when it, when it re- becomes a feeling of monotonous, at that point, I don't change it. I just create a variation. I put something in their hands. I, I ban them in a different way. I add a bit of chaos. Um, I drop them from a higher height and I increase intensity or increase density, take away rest time, do something to make them feel like, oh, this is a bit different, but an opportunity to keep practicing the same movement or similar movement pattern, a similar stress and create new ways of moving or better ways of moving. Um, I, every club I go into often, um, I, I'm like, you're just changing things too much. Or I give them a program and a system and they'll be like, okay, so when are we changing it? And I'm like, it's too soon. When are we ch-? Look, Leicester Tigers is a good one. And Ollie is, is an excellent practitioner. 
and and you know after four weeks it's like right we've got to change it up a bit the boys are getting bored let's put a stick in their hand you agree i agree cool that's it that's the change they've gone consistently twice a week doing key drills and doing key bleed runs put a stick in their hand great three weeks later it's like boys are getting bored let's get some wickets out cool same warm-up, same drills. It's just now we're included. Instead of the bleed runs, we're just now replaced in wickets. Okay, okay. three weeks later, which is kind of like uh, last week or the week before. Okay, let's add some aquabags. Let's add some curve runs. Let's add some other bits. The same principles are being coached. The same feelings are being enhanced. It's just we add a bit of variation so that it goes from that control to chaos um, spectrum so that it starts to feel a bit more like game speed. And, but yet it still allows us to keep practicing and building the, the reactivity and the pelvic control and, and, the, and the thigh angle of velocity that we know is going to be critical for performance. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, we, we spoke about capacity earlier um, and forces. We've spoken about, I, I guess, a lot of the sort of technical models within sprinting. Say you've got a physio listening now and um, they want to start developing their coaching eye. What are some kind of ways or maybe even tools that they can use to make that easier because in real time if they're not used to looking at sprints to see somebody moving in in real time is is hard uh, and takes a long time to develop what's the what's the easiest way for them to kind of get on board with this yeah so i think the easiest way is to you still you need to do some education you just need to understand some fundamental tenets you um we use view motion to create um to, to collect data on movement. And then we've, our system, Speed Solutions, takes a lot of data and summarizes it into actionable points. So we, 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 we have three or four years worth of, of, of a big data bank from, from the teams we've worked with. But more specifically, there's context behind the data. We understand what's been happening training-wise. We understand what's maybe not happening We've got some good research projects and, and longitudinal studies of interventions, and we have lots of rehab projects. And so there are some easy lessons that have come out of that in the field, in team sports, around what is efficient sprinting, not track and field, just rugby, just football, AFL. What is efficient? What does efficiency look like over time? What does it look like when people run fast but aren't efficient? And what are the interventions needed to change those things? Now, before we can even work on interventions, you need to know you need to know what to look at and what the right shapes are. So we've we've created a course for that. We've got the biomechanics, new biomechanics course that basically gives you the the 15 years that I've been doing this. You can summarize it by just watching a few slides, seeing some graphics. If anyone knows me on social media, they know my dyslexia means don't listen to what I read because you can't read it. Yeah, but look at how what I draw. Look at what we graphically put on screens because we can summarize. Um, books and books of biomechanical research into a simple two-minute video, into a way that you as a practitioner can have just your phone alone and just scroll through a video and, and stop at touchdown and ask yourself, are they hitting the key shapes that we want to hit or not? So the first thing is a bit of education. The second thing is, well, once you you feel like you're ready um, or that your your athlete needs it, again, you you subscribe to view motion. You can go through our website, Speedworks Training or, or Speed Solutions, stop training. And um, you use a phone, five cones, you pull it out there, you record a run, you upload it. And, and within a day or two, sometimes instantly, if I'm honest, this, this past month, we've been getting our data straight away. It all depends on the load. Um, you'll get your data back. You'll get Speed Solutions reports. 
and all the speed solution report is is a uh, a way of me automating my coaching eye and the wisdom that we've created over the past really the past decade using this in, in performance sport and you can just see a report straight away that gives you the summary of what you need to work on what was limited where is that asymmetries what's a real asymmetry and what's a, a number to ignore even though there's a, 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 a disparity in, in the numbers um and we can easily just give you that information and make sense of it so summarize first get yourself on something that will at least make you help you understand the big rocks of biomechanics what to look at what to ignore in that education you should learn cause and effect if we see this we know it's an issue but it's created by this other thing happening in the running cycle that's something that people get stuck on you know ben you mentioned ben at the beginning he he said that i've demystified sprint training and when he said that a few years ago, I took it and I tweeted it and it became one of our phrases. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> because, because it's true. Um, I think the only, there's been sprint trainers trying to do, um, and, and even now working in team sports and having very limited buy-in um, across the whole department. And, but yet we go in and we speak to physios, technical staff, coaches and players and agents. But we speak in the same language and we get them to, to understand to, and, and not even understand fully, but understand enough to be confident in the process that we're putting forward, confident that it will get them healthy, get them efficient, and also turn into their sport. This is the most important thing, will transfer onto the field. And most of that is just by keeping it simple and working heuristics that transfer across the board by providing cueing coaching cueing and instruction that encourages them to be empowered so coaching cueing that turns into feelings this is the most critical thing for me be it an internal cue an external cue an analogy video analysis um, a game that forces them to do a certain movement pattern that's not an argument i'm going to talk about i, I would use all of those different things depending on the scenario but what's the main outcome that the player can link an, a, a feeling to an outcome that they want. They can link the fact that I need to cut and break through that hole over there. And I know that if I, if I do it this way and it was ineffective, I already have a positive feeling from a prior training session of a way to solve this puzzle. I have a reference point. And that gives me confidence that actually I just need to whack the ground a bit harder. I need to throw my shoulders a bit earlier. I need to do something that will make me feel like I felt last time that I felt this way and, and I was given a, a solution. And so um, I think for the for the therapist or the, co the coach who's just trying to learn and make sense of this, the easiest and quickest way is to do some short courses to make sense of what your coaching eye could and should be seeing um collect some simple data or just record using your phone and make sense of those things and then apply some appropriate interventions using the appropriate training menu that helps you connect um the physical properties the the motor learning and, and, and the biomechanical goals as well as the, the the actual exercises and and the outcomes that you're looking for so oh, yeah really well put 
Um, man, we're aware of time. Where's the? You obviously mentioned your course with Ben coming up, but or workshop. Where's the? Uh, where's the best place for people to follow you and and track you down? Yeah, Speedworks Training on Instagram and on Twitter. That's that's the spot. That's the place. You can go to speedsolutions.training if you want to know more about video analysis. And um and 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 I'm eat sleep train underscore again on most of those channels. So you can find us there. Um and and our and our website is speedworks.training as well. So pretty easy. Perfect, mate. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time today. And um, I'm, I'm going to play this episode back a few times and just try and sponge as much of this as I can. And I'm sure I won't be alone in that uh, either. Appreciate your time. And it's been a long time coming to do this one. So I appreciate your patience as well.